This is Lord Dragonblut and Dragon's Angel of TinBuckReview.net. And you're listening to Linux in the Ham Shack, where these guys glow in the dark. What is this ham crap they keep talking about? I think it's bacon. Or is it bacon bacon where the vegans and the vegetarians eat? But we said bacon, not bacon lube, folks. Or bacon A's. No, no. Bacon. Hello and welcome back to Linux in the Ham Shack. I hope everybody survived the holidays. We are back again. We got a bang-up show this evening. Tonight we're going to talk to the guys from Linux Journal and all that good stuff. My name is Richard, KB5JBV, and I am one of the presenters of this show. Let me send you over to the next state over to Russ, the other co-host. And we call him the other co-host because... He's not me. Say hello, Russ. Hi, everybody. I'm uh, live in Arkansas tonight in the up, upside-down part of the United States. The United States has apparently flipped over in the last couple of weeks because we're getting temperatures we're not supposed to get, and this fluffy white stuff we're not supposed to get either. So everything's kind of upside-down and gone to hell in a handbasket, mm-hmm. if only it were that warm. But anyway... Back to Richard down in Dallas, where it's probably unseasonably cool as well. Yeah, there you go. Take that, Al Gore. Ha <laughs> ha! Global warming my foot. In fact, global warming all of me. <laughs> oh, what the heck. Anyway, take that, Al Gore. And in fact, we're supposed to have uh, zero and below temperatures down here. We haven't had weather like that, seems like, back since the 80s. We had a week of uh, below zero temperatures then. And, uh, oh, yeah, we've had that white stuff falling. It ain't accumulating. It's not allowing me to play hooky from work, but you can't have everything. So uh, we're going to move on along so we can try and give these guys a maximum amount of time on the uh, on the podcast. So let's just dive right on into uh, feedback. So what do we got this time around, Russ? Well, we don't have a whole lot, but we do have some we can talk about. Well, the first thing I want to mention is that um, last episode we talked a little bit about WSPR, also called Whisper, and I found a an article by a gentleman from the UK, G3ZJO, and he had some interesting insights on Whisper, and some of his comments were the motivation for our little discussion last week. You can do a search for G3ZJO on the Internet. You'll find his blog out there. I believe he uses Blogspot or one of the other blogging companies. 
I published his article on Whisper on our page at lhsinfo.org. You can click on the articles link uh, up at the top, and you'll get the article there. It's called WSPR2 on Ubuntu 9.04 and 9.10. So there's some more information there for those of you who are interested in Whisper. I've been playing around with it, haven't had a lot of success uh, lately. But I did want to mention him and that he was kind enough to allow me to reprint his article. Uh, his name is Eddie, by the way, G3ZJO. Anyway, uh, that's the first bit I've got. You got anything? Oh, well, let's see. I got a few things. There's a guy named Don, WS4E, that uh, wrote in. Well, we've heard of him. Hey. I think I've heard that call sign before. Yeah, that would be Don. That would be Don? Don. I just got an iPhone and was excited to see there is a Ustream app for it. However, only pre-approved streams can be found on it. Uh, they apparently want to make sure it meets certain conditions. It looks like LHS and RF streams would qualify. You guys might want to uh, look into making the streams available. And that's from Don. And underneath, he puts the criteria, and I got to looking at this. Ustream works uh, really hard to provide high-quality shows for the iPhone. Let's just cut through it. Here's the list. No broadcasting, nudity of any kind. Well, they don't have to worry about that because I don't normally podcast in the nude unless I have the camera turned off. Uh, no vulgar content. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see how that pans out because they might very well get upset about gesticles. Uh, let's see. Uh, content that you do not own. Uh, broadcasting any illegal activities. Let's see. Terms of service, Apple terms, show logo. I think we have one of those. And at least one recorded video. I believe we have all that stuff. But we will have to ask Russ. Russ? We actually do have all of that stuff. And not only do we have all of that stuff, I took Don's advice and I wrote into the guys at Ustream and asked if we could be included in their iPhone application. Because right now, those of you that are in the chat room are able to actually watch the video live at this time. Now, I understand it only shows the primary video, which is a problem we've run into with the recorded videos. They don't show the uh, secondary video stream, and that's probably good because, number one, y'all probably don't want to see what I'm doing. Number two, I might want a podcast in nude. So anyway, they they did approve it uh, just to make sure that everybody gets uh, Richard's point clearly. Uh, and you can see our current episodes, and if you do a search in the iPhone app, you can see a few of the back episodes, but not all of them. I only saw a couple listed in there. But if you have an iPhone and you want to watch the live version of Linux in the Hamshack, you can now do that with the free Ustream application. You can take it with you to your child's play, uh, band, band concert. You can sit in a movie and watch it. Whatever you want to do, just take it along with you. We also have a ping back from, uh, let's see where it was on Linux Mint 7 refreshing. Apparently, uh, W, or VK5JFK decided to post some information concerning that particular, uh, particular post over at our website. Uh, thank you, sir. We sure do appreciate it. All right. And one more as far as feedback. Uh, here's an interesting one for you, Russ, and you're probably going to have to field it because, uh, I'm not that smart. Uh, this one comes from Paul over at the, uh, Teen Radio Journey, uh, 
podcast. And Paul says, my dad and I are having some issues with our file server here that used to run Ubuntu 6.04. We decided that we needed to just put a fresh install of the latest version of Ubuntu server on there. So we did. We made sure to put it on the partition separate from the partitions for the directories. Now that we have uh, Linux reinstalled, we are wondering how we can view the files from the other hard drives and partitions and then recover and back them up so we can create a new file server. Hey, <laughs> That's from Paul uh, over at uh, Teen Radio Journey. Got any ideas on that one, Russ? All right, Paul. Well, it looks like you did the right thing as far as making sure you kept everything on a separate partition and installing in a different place. Now, one thing that's not real clear from your email is whether these partitions are on two separate drives or not. If they're on the same drive, um, that probably wasn't the best way to do it, but basically you just have to figure out where where your partitions are. I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that you actually did this on two completely different drives and that the new install is on one drive and the old install is on another one. What you basically need to do is figure out what the root drive's letters are. Um, If this is a newer system, it's probably a SATA drive system or a SAS drive system. If it's older, it may be ATA type system or IDE. In either case, you're going to have two devices. If this is uh, ATA or IDE, you know that the way the system is set up is you have a primary and a secondary controller, and on each of those controllers you have a primary and secondary hard drive. Well, if your new partition is on the primary controller, primary hard drive, then that's going to be slash dev slash HDA. If it's uh, primary controller secondary, it's going to be slash dev slash HDB. And then you have HDC and HDD in the obvious order. So let's assume that you installed a new hard drive on the secondary controller, and that's where you did the install. So your secondary controller is slash dev slash HDC, and your new partitions are HDC 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, so on and so forth. And then the old controller, or the old drive, is on slash dev slash HDA, because that's the primary and so it'll be slash dev slash HDA, one, two, three, four, five. And assuming you didn't set those up during the install to automatically mount, you're going to have to do it after the fact. So what you what you normally do is most Linux installations have a directory called mount, which is slash MNT. So what you do is you go into slash MNT, and you do a make dir, M-K-D-I-R, for all of the directories you want to see from your old installation. So if you had a root, you might make a file you might make a directory called root R O O T. And so you do MKDIR space R O O T inside the slash MNT directory. And then if you want to see the old user, you make a directory called user var temp home, you know, whatever it is you need to see. And then what you do is you mount those directories manually. So if you wanted to mount the old root, for example, you would type mount space, slash, dev, slash, hda1, assuming that's where the old root was, space, slash, mnt, slash, root, r-o-o-t. 
And when you do that, that'll mount the old drive's root into slash mnt slash root, and all of the files that were under that partition will be in that directory. So if you need to get the Etsy files or other configurations or anything like that, you know, from the old drive, you'll be able to copy them out of there just like they're on your new uh, disk. You just copy them back and forth or whatever. You know, if you're using SATA or PATA or SAS drives, then you're going to be using slash dev slash SDA slash dev slash SDB, so on and so forth. But basically you can substitute SDA whatever for whatever you need. And if you're not sure which one is which, you can use the D message command, D-M-E-S-G. And what what that will show you is a lot of boot log information. And if you look in the boot log information, you'll be able to see where your drives were loaded. When when the kernel module is loaded for your drive support, it will tell you what device names it used. It'll say, you know, I found slash dev slash HDA, I found slash dev slash HDB, or whatever it happened to find. You just have to search for that information in dmessage. You can do dmessage with a grep. You know, DMESG with a pipe and then grep for HDA or SDA or just SD or HD. And that information should show up. So it's, it's pretty easy to figure out where your uh, partitions are. You just use the mount command, M-O-U-N-T, with the directories you've made inside the slash MNT directory. And that's where you mount all your old stuff, and then you just copy them from the old place to the new place if you need to make any changes to your uh, Etsy files or if you want to recover anything from your old home directory or anything you need out of your old VAR directory or whatever it is you need from the old hard disk. Uh, That's pretty straightforward, and that should do it for you. And I think I've covered most of the bases, but if I didn't hit exactly on the topic, just go ahead and email me back and... Or email us back, and we will uh, address this further. So, is uh, there anything you want to add to that, Richard? Uh, no, that pretty much covers it. Best, best I can tell. Um, thank you for writing in anyway, Paul. And I hope we get you to get it. You get it taken care of. Yes, if you continue to have issues, get back in contact with us. Okay, that pretty much wraps up feedback. Uh, is there anything else before we move on to our interview with Sean and David Russ? I just had a couple of little housekeeping things. The first one is that I got a Google alert for a Twitter mention we got a few days ago from Tim LS, T-I-M-L-S, who mentioned that he was going off to listen to the Linux in the Hamshack podcast. So I wanted to thank him for that. For any mention on Twitter of Linux in the Hamshack is good by me. Uh, hopefully he's got lots of followers. I didn't bother to check. It doesn't really matter. But if we get one more listener, that's just a happier day for me. And then the other thing, go ahead. No, I was going to say that all of you guys that are on Twitter go out there and write a little little uh, status about uh, going and listening to Linux in the Ham Shack. And for everybody else, or uh, once you've done that, wait for somebody else to do it and then retweet them. Let's see if we can like lock down Twitter with uh, listening to Linux in the Ham Shack podcast. Go ahead, Russ. Sounds good to me. And the only other thing I had was one donation. We got a donation from Bill, and Bill's call sign is NF9D, November Foxtrot 9 Delta. And we want to thank Bill very much for his donation, for contributing to our fund to get to uh, the Dayton Hamvention. 
in May of 2010. And like I said, we are very close to getting there. So hopefully we'll all see you out in Dayton. Thank you very much, Bill. Every little bit helps. So what else you got, Russ? Anything else before we go and visit with the guys from uh, Linux Journal? Nope, that is all I've got. I think we're going to wrap it up. I might put a little something to play while people go get a drink, uh, do whatever they got to do for the next three or four minutes, and then we will talk with Sean Powers and David Lane from the Linux Journal. Bunch of good guys, and we'll have a good conversation with them, I know. We'll be right back. Okay, tonight we're going to, uh, we have some special guests. We're going to talk to them a little while. We have Sean and David from over at Linux Journal. Linux Journal recently did an issue that had a lot of amateur radio content in it. They've added some stuff over there, and we're going to chat about that kind of stuff tonight. Uh, hello, Sean and David. Hello. Good evening. 
Well, it's good to have you guys on board this evening. And since Rush, Russ cooked this up, I'm going to kick back a little bit and let him get started. Go get him, Russ. Actually, Carly is the one who's cooked this up. She she planted the seed. If I remember right, Carly is the editor of Linux Journal. Yes, no, someone confirmed? Uh, publisher. 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 All right, publisher. She's the head boss lady. And that's why she decided not to show up here tonight. She doesn't want to besmirch her reputation by showing up here, I guess. Well, every time I, I think if she put it to me, she was uh, pimping me out, Russ. So um, that that could be. Oh well, she uh, sp- she explicitly pimped out Sean for the evening as well. She said that he would be a great substitute. <laughs> so people would rather people would rather listen to Sean than her any day, I guess. Well, I don't know. I guess we won't know this time. We we may find out sometime in the in the future. But anyway. I Let's can do see. my Carly impression if you like. Oh, I, I, uh, <laughs> sure. No, no, actually, I don't have one because she's my boss, and that's just not wise. <laughs> <laughs> not without video. Not without video. Yeah, <laughs> or at least some sort of context. Carly doesn't work without video. You're right. Right, and we'll make sure this doesn't show up on Facebook for at least twenty minutes. And there you have it. <laughs> So, Sean, let's see if I remember this correctly. You are the associate or the assistant editor? Um, Associate, I think, is the official title. Associate, okay. So what does that mean that you do exactly? That means I do anything that's required. Um, I have a column that introduces the the issue, and actually David did the the column for our ham issue, um, the current issue.tar.gz. It just introduces what the issue is about and, you know, a couple other um, small pieces in the magazine. And I do videos for the web, so you want me to do a video impression of Carly, you know, be careful what you wish for. Um, <laughs> and, again, pretty much anything that is required around Linux Journal. That's what associate I, means. Actually, I've seen the videos, and most of them are pretty good. Yeah, those are probably the ones the other guy does, Mitch. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so associate editor includes uh, doing videos, uh, writing articles and showing up on Lane podcasts. So great, good to hear from you there, uh, David. Uh, I know you were responsible for a lot of the ham radio part of this, being that you're a ham radio operator and all, and had a lot to contribute to the ham radio articles in the uh, ham radio issue that just came out. So, uh, what else do you do for Linux Journal? Well, I'm actually a hanger-on, if you will. Um, I stumbled into them sideways, and uh, somebody thought that I might be qualified to uh, make uh, the occasional um, uh, reader input to uh, stuff, so they stuck me on the editorial advisory board. And along the way, someone got a hold of uh, something I wrote and decided that I probably should be uh, blogging for them. So uh, that's what I've been doing for the better part of the year. And then... um, Carly decided that uh, she wanted to do a, a focus issue on amateur radio, and uh, as I was the most vocal amateur radio member of the group, um, I um, was volunteered. Ah, well, that would explain that. Now, we're, we're, have either of you been with the magazine? I'm going to guess no, but have either of you been with the magazine long enough to uh, know about the first issue? Because as I understand it, the first issue was all about ham radio as well. Well, the first issue is actually available um, as a PDF. I actually convinced Carly to scan it in. And I don't know that the focus is on amateur radio, but you have me curious now. If you go to store.linuxjournal.com, um, it's a, it doesn't cost anything. It's just where it's posted. And now I'm going to look because I'm very curious. So I'll let you know in just a couple minutes here. Keep going. <laughs> 
and 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 I will admit that uh, that I uh, was not uh, a Linux user um, when the first issue came out. So uh, uh, I haven't been with the magazine that long. Although I've been a subscriber since oh ninety eight or so. So um, I've been watching it a long time, but uh, it's it's been a a, a fun ride. <laughs> Well, that's good. I, I've been a subscriber since 2010. <laughs> All right, we got another one. <laughs> um, the uh, the thing of it is, I haven't actually had to subscribe until recently. Uh, it's nice to actually have the printed copies in hand now, so I can actually read all of them. And instead of the intermittent copies that I would get, I usually go to four or five conferences a year, and of course, I pick up uh, a Linux journal every time I go. So uh, I haven't really needed a subscription per se, but since since we've uh, had a lot more time to talk with uh, you all over there and, and try and get involved in this ham radio stuff, uh, I thought I might want to be a subscriber. So I actually went ahead and, and signed up, and I, and I actually have my first copy right here next to me, uh, which is the February Fabulous. 2010. And awesome. uh, I actually read Sean's articles in here. Yeah, I think you had a couple. So this is this is kind of new territory for me, but uh, I like the magazine quite a bit. I appreciate that. Well, don't spoil the ending for don't spoil the ending for me. I haven't got my February one yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, I do not have the issue that has that talks about ham radio, um, and nor have I read it. But I've heard all kinds of things about it because everybody who podcasts uh, that we listen to has done nothing but talk about. It. Well, one thing is, you know, you're going to hear some of it on some of the other shows too. Uh, uh, I can't remember who it is over at, over at Cranks is, uh, amateur radio operator. And, uh, that's one of the reasons he latched on to us there for a while. They were inviting us on all the time over there, but, uh, the word's getting around and, uh, we've done the best we could to spread the word, uh, to our listeners anyway, because everybody needs some help. You know, I consider myself fresh to Linux. Uh, I've only been messing with it for four or five years and not heavy, heavy duty doing, it, but, uh, I was one of those that had to make a change. So now I've changed and I'm, I'm working my way through it, but we find more and more of the radio operators moving over that direction. Cause you know, uh, well, as, as I, as Russ says, amateur radio operators are frugal. So Linux makes sense. Uh, in my case, uh, I'm cheap, so Linux makes sense. <laughs> uh, you know, when you, you, talk, you talk about our frugality. One of the things that I think we're going to see is um, as the support drops off from the Redmond operating system, um, we're going to continue to be running some of this uh, you know, ancient antique hardware, and Linux really just makes sense on this stuff. It, it will continue to uh, extend the life expectancy of it. And uh, for things like packet systems that, um, you know, basically are self-maintaining once you get them up and running, they don't need a lot of heavy-duty hardware, but you got to keep the, the OS running, and it's getting harder and harder and harder to sort of swap out parts. But uh, with Linux, you can swap out the parts and uh, upgrade the OS and have a pretty, pretty confident feel that it's going to uh, keep running for you. Well, uh, everybody that's been listening to this show, and I also do another podcast that is more uh, amateur radio related or uh, less Linux related. And uh, for all our listeners, they know that I have I've been working with a, uh, a Dell Latitude laptop. It's about ten years old, which has about 128 megs of memory in it and a five gig hard drive. And of all things, I'm uh, working on D Star Digital. Uh, 
with this particular machine, and it runs just as well as, uh, uh, well, it, it runs just as good, I'm sure, as this 3-gig machine sitting on the floor over here behind me would doing that kind of stuff. And uh, since, uh, well, I guess we'll give, uh, give uh, uh, Dan a plug. KK7, uh, what is it, DS, uh, is writing this DRATS program. He's also have also has a repeater, a basic digipeter program that goes along with it. And uh, that's what we're working with over here. But it is definitely minimal equipment, uh, this laptop. So, uh, yeah, that was another reason because a lot of my equipment... If uh, somebody's going to just go buy them a new one because they want a new one, I beg them for the one they're going to get rid of because I can still get several years out of it. Here in Prince William, we just stood up a, uh, a D-Star gateway, and uh, D-Star runs with uh, CentOS as its underlay, underpinnings, and uh, we've got it running on a, an old uh, desktop. I'm not even sure how many megahertz are in the thing. And, uh, you know, a simple VNC connection into it, uh, it runs headless, it doesn't need a lot of RAM on the box, and uh, we can manage it externally and remotely uh, pretty much painlessly. And one of the things we're, we're finagling around is trying to figure out how we can do a... Uh, 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 a D-Star digital connection and uh, manage the uh, the gateway that way. Uh, Vice having to uh, have an internet uh, um, connection with all the uh, inherent problems there. So something to uh, to look into. But certainly the capabilities there and with uh, the Linux operating system running underneath it gives us the flexibility to do what we needed to do. Well, exactly. Uh, among other things, you know, I'm, I'm writing a couple of scripts here and there to, uh, reformat stuff to go out as beacons on the, uh, on the D star digital and that kind of stuff. Uh, I've heard a lot of, a lot of good things about that new gateway software and I was made aware it ran on CentOS. Uh, but I, I can't get my hands on a copy of it to play with it. Uh, <laughs> the old boy that, uh, the old boy that's in charge of maintenance on the, uh, closest repeater to my house, he just won't cut loose with a copy of it. So Russ is over there shaking his head because we've gone right, right off track. He's over there drinking his antifreeze again. Uh, say something, Russ. I can't. I'm in the middle of drinking my antifreeze. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, last time it was Windex. This time it's antifreeze. Well, it's great. <clears throat> it's the only thing that keeps me going these days. Anyway, um, so uh, I know Sean said he was going to dig around in the store and see if he could find that first episode. Did you manage to dig it up? You know, I didn't in the store. There was a PDF of it somewhere, but you know, every every article ever written in any Linux Journal magazine is on our website. So I just I put a link here in the chat room, uh, both to that first issue and also directly to the article on Ham Radio that was in the very first issue. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I'm not sure where I discovered that or where I dug it up, but I know when uh, I started looking at the January issue from 2010 that I saw some reference to the fact that it might have been something that David had posted in uh, a blog or something on the Linux Journal site, and I just kind of uh, ran with that or anything uh, or something. But uh, interestingly, I uh, Richard over there, he's he's a digital guy when it comes to amateur radio, and I, on the other hand, spend my whole life doing digital things, so I lean towards the analog. I do a lot of uh, single sideband and and uh, CW work. I was just looking at I was just looking at the Linux Journal, and uh, it looks like it started in 1994. I guess mm-hmm. the uh, first issue came out in '94, and 
interestingly, 1994 must be one of those uh, grand uh, vortex years or something, because that was the year I started both uh, amateur radio and Linux for myself. And I didn't realize that until I started looking at it. I was using, um, no, what was I using? Red Hat 4? 99, Red Hat 5? No, 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 94. Oh, 94, I'm sorry, that would be Red Hat 3. 3, yeah, Red Hat 3 is uh, 3.2 or something like that, maybe, something around there. And I got my license in, uh, well, actually I got my license in late 1993 and then started started using Red Hat 3 shortly thereafter. I actually ran my first uh, packet node, and I've said this before, so for this is only for the two guys that are on the on the phone with us right now, but uh, my first packet node was a Minix machine. And I, don't, I guess Minix is still around. Uh, I haven't played with that since 1995. I haven't. Yeah, I must admit I haven't played with that at all. A quick, quick web search shows that Minix is still around. It's version 3.1.5 right now. Um, and the only reason I was running Minix, and I don't think I ever said this before, was because Linux doesn't run on anything previous to an i386 architecture. Uh, Minix will run on x86s. It's similar to Linux, but it'll actually run on really early uh, Intel chipsets. <laughs> well, the the reason it's so similar, Russ, and um, and and I'll take this opportunity to slap you upside the head for it, is because Linus um, based it on Minix. I think I knew that. I'm sure I said that once before. <laughs> well, who says we're supposed to know this stuff? I, <laughs> I'm I'm in the we're in the shadow of greatness tonight, so all of my knowledge is going straight out my you know my head, and I have no idea what's going on. I admit I haven't got a clue. <laughs> that, that's what Google's for, in my opinion. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> the, the only the only reason I know that one is because I uh, when I was talking to um, Hap Holly over at the Rain Report earlier this month or, or late last year, um, he asked me the question and I I had just taken a look at Linus's uh, page. Also was talking with Linus at uh, at LinuxCon back in October, but uh, Linus put out a, a very good book a couple of years ago about how he sort of got to where Linux uh, became uh, a, a real operating system, and it was quite a fascinating book. And when you take that with um, um, Under the Brim, which is the history of Red Hat, um, together really gives you sort of the, the early days of, of the Linux movements and, uh, and how we sort of got to where we were around year 2000. Um, and, and really those two books together sort of give you a really good overarching view of where we can potentially wind up going. Now, see, that's why we have guests on the show, because these guys read books. <laughs> well, I have to read books because I just bashed e-readers uh, just this, just yesterday, so I won't. So I have to, you know, go back to reading paper. All e-readers? You don't like any of them? I, I, I you can read my uh, my my current post at uh, at the Linux Journal, but I, I'm not impressed with them right at this moment. They've got a ways to go yet. Take a hammer to your Kindle. Take a hammer to your Kindle. <laughs> You just got the wrong one there. I mean, I know this is going off topic, but doggone it, I love my. Oh no, we we never set a topic, so you know, you go okay, ahead. And... Okay, okay. <laughs> I, 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 to be quite honest, um, I actually got my hands on a Kindle this morning, and I and I performed some of the same tests that I performed on the Sony uh, over the weekend, and 
I'm still not convinced. Uh, the performance, the legibility issue went up a little bit. It was it was a little easier to read, but I still had to zoom in on some of the articles in order to read them. Um, the rendering of the PDFs was still marginal on some of the PDFs. I mean, the ones I was having trouble with, I was still having trouble with. Um, and the speed factor was a little faster, but not by much. So I, I'm still not sold on... Um, on e-readers as a technology yet um, I think the potential is there and certainly from my perspective what I wanted them for and as I spelled out in my in my uh, discussion I'm looking at them more as a document management tool not a uh, replacement for books uh, one of the things that is near and dear to my heart is emergency communications and so I'm constantly having to carry documents and uh, manuals and uh, response guides and that sort of thing and, and having an e-reader and that sort of stuff available on an e-reader to me just sort of seemed like a magic fit uh, because they've got you know that, that long term battery life and you don't have to uh, you know you don't have the overhead of a, of, a, of a CPU starting up and all the things on a, on a laptop or even a netbook and I was really looking forward and hoping it would be successful, and you know, it just it just didn't pan out for me. So uh, I'm I'm going back to uh, having to carry a, a small binder of uh, of manuals and uh, ICS forms and uh, all that stuff that uh, the Aries folks need to carry with them uh, to emergencies. I'll have you know, I have a three inch binder that I carry in my go kit. It's got everything, buddy. I was I was uh, I was an assistant EC until they did a restructure in our district. <clears throat> so I understand exactly what you're talking about. Of course, you know the guys over at the Burton Ernie Action Show say the Kindle's the greatest thing that ever happened. So <laughs> those guys clearly have no clue because uh, I, I mean, I have nothing but bad things to say about the Kindle, and I don't even own one. But you know, of course, if I did own one, I probably wouldn't badmouth it quite as bad. But I can't the wait till the. Uh, I don't like about the Kindle. I'll admit is the DRM that that bothers me a lot. Yeah. However, the um, Kindle DX, the big giant and absurdly expensive one, mm-hmm. it does a really nice job of rendering PDFs. I'll, I'll I'll give it that. It does a really nice job with PDF files. Well, but the, only, the DRM drives me nuts. Yeah. The only thing that scares me about that is the ability to reach in and delete a book you've already paid for. Now, okay, they made a mistake, but it showed off the fact that they can do that. And uh, with Amazon, it's kind of hard to believe they're going that route because at least their music files are DRM-free. And uh, they can't come into your computer and delete them. And and it was ironic that the book happened to be 1984, too. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Yeah, a little bit of a bad call there, but what are you going to do? I guess they should have let somebody know before they started wiping books out, especially ones about Big Brother. But, yeah, what are you going to do? I do. I can't wait till the uh, the ebook technology comes of age, though, because it would be nice to have all of like my sysadmin documentation in one PDA type format, especially one uh, even if it's kind of like a tablet PC kind of thing or or an ebook. The the ebooks are nice because of the the longevity. I mean, basically, if you're not uh, if you're not doing a page refresh, they essentially use zero power, which is a great thing. But when that stuff comes of age and you can actually have all of the information you need right at your fingertips uh, and uh, extraordinarily bat- battery life, uh, not looking at anyone who has terrible battery life, Apple. Um, but, you know, as soon as, as soon as that stuff comes of age, I'm going to be really happy. 
Well, one of the things that I'm chomping at the bit at, besides you know being able to carry my manuals and my EC stuff, is I have a stack, literally three and a half, four feet tall, um, of O'Reilly books uh, that. I live and die by. I mean, there's stuff that's buried in there, those nuggets that you need. Um, and I quite often move from office to office taking, you know, 30 boxes worth of my library with me from office to office just so I have access to those books. And being able to have those electronically is is something that I'm just chomping at the bit to get. Um, and it's it's still not quite there yet. And it's, it's nice that Safari's there and I can get them on Safari sometimes, but not having to, to constantly uh, rely on an Internet connection is uh, is to me a, a, a very valuable thing. I know everybody talks that you know everything's going to be available in this giant fuzzy cloud, and we're going to be able to access it. And, and I've been hearing the free, cheap, and available bandwidth pitch from every ISP for the last 15 years, and I'm still not seeing free, cheap, and available. So uh, you know, I, I'm still of the of the mindset, and I guess it's because a I'm a luddite, and b I'm constantly thinking about the end of the world. Uh, you know, for me, if I can't use it on uh, paper, pencil, or um, really long-term battery, it, it isn't a viable solution. Well, I'm a follower of St. Lud myself, so uh, I can see where you're coming from. Uh, <laughs> Russ is more techno-savvy, though. He he believes in the future, and I myself, why can't we have paper? <laughs> well, we're actually working on a paperless initiative at work, and... So I've I've got to look look forward to not having any paper. I've actually dealt without having to have anything on paper except for a few notes scribbled here and there for quite some time. The only problem is I don't properly back things up, so I really need to kick myself in the butt on that and uh, make sure that when something does go wrong, uh, I'm not hanging myself out to dry. Russ, I remember... I remember being down at the Commerce Department back in the late 90s when they were going paperless, and I think their paper budget went up 15%. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, we've been going on quite a while about uh, about e-readers and stuff like that. Um, one of the questions in the chat room is, you know, and I'd like to know this myself, is how did you guys come across ham radio in the first place? Sean, you want to take that one? Oh, yeah, sure. See, I, yeah, I'm not a ham radio operator. I'm here. I'm the noob in this. In this, we will fix that in this podcast. So I want to be enlightened as to um, to get me interested in getting my license. There we go. Now, the exciting part is, though, I, I, you you gave me the you gave me the mic. You're in trouble now. Um, is it's perfectly legal and acceptable for anybody to listen. Am I correct? So I don't have to have a license to. That is entirely correct. You can. World. Yep, you can uh, grab any piece of uh, ham radio gear or shortwave radio and listen to whatever you like. They haven't patented or big brotherized or otherwise licensed listening yet. The only thing that is currently Ill- illegal to intercept is cell phone conversations, and uh, unlike everything else in, in the radio spectrum. In most places, you can listen to whatever you want to as long as you don't disclose what you hear. Okay, uh, and that's the way the cell phone frequency used to be. Now you can get in trouble for getting caught monitoring them. Uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, Radio Shack and other places don't have cell phone frequencies in their scanners anymore. But, yes, you're, you're correct for the most part. Uh, you can li- if you, anything you can listen to, you can listen to without a license. See? 
That was easy. <laughs> now we've just covered three questions on the technician class test. <laughs> was that the old pool or the new pool? Because I just got an email from the VEC that the new pool's out. <laughs> I haven't checked the new one yet. I'm bad. I'm bad. Well, that's okay. As I say, I only just got the email myself. Um, from 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 my perspective, um, uh, like all good son-in-laws, I was trying to find a way to ingratiate myself with my father-in-law, and I was down visiting him one afternoon, and it turns out that he himself is an amateur, and he had a whole stack of QSTs, and there being nothing to do uh, in the south of Florida in in March, I was uh, sitting back and reading uh, QST. And uh, found it to be rather fascinating, and I've always been interested in communication. I, I had a Coleco CB40 growing up, which will tell you how old I am, and uh, you know was always interested in that sort of thing, and never really had the opportunity to get licensed uh, when I was living in Canada. And suddenly, I find myself with a, a potential uh, inroad, and I can, you know, I can, ooh, I have something in common. I can talk to my father-in-law about. Maybe I should, you know, figure out what this this ham thing is all about. So I went off and I took the, uh, got the uh, now you're talking and uh, boned up on the exam and uh, went and took my technician and uh, got my ticket and pretty much the rest is history. Uh, Became a, a, a VEC uh, when I got my extra a couple of years later. Um, I'm also a mentor for the uh, ARL's uh, emergency communication courses. Been doing that since 2000. So uh, that's that's kind of how I fell into it. Yeah, those AREC courses. I'm glad you mentioned those. You know, I got in on the grants, so I took all three of them for free. But <laughs> everybody ought to have those under their belt. Well, uh, also, we got asked in the uh, chat room, you said you were an EC. Uh, what state and county? I think I can give it a guess, but go ahead. <laughs> well, all you have to do is look at the cover of the um, January 2010, and it'll be answered for you because the penguin's wearing my badge. I am the emergency coordinator and the races officer for Prince William County, Virginia. Well, there you go. 30, 30 miles outside the District of Columbia. So we have a really big target painted on our foreheads every day. Well, you know, as long as you keep an eye on the airliners, everything will be wonderful. Yeah, we're not worried about the airliners anymore. Now it's buses, trains, plan, uh, buses, trains, and um, the occasional IED. Hey, you know what? You're right. He is wearing your name tag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's actually a story behind that one too. They uh, sent me. Uh, I was uh, I was at um, the Redmond conference in uh, Las Vegas, and they sent the cover over and said uh, what do you think and it was before they had the tag and i said looks good great cover because that that's what we're going to run with and carly said uh, 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 we need to put david's uh call sign on because we were originally going to run with a with a with a tux call a w4 or a k4 tux and uh the only badge i had at the time with me was my ec's badge so i uh, took a couple of quick pictures of that and sent it up and the artist uh basically peeled off my name and uh, hung the badge around Tux's throat, so Tux is a licensed operator. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Or as my daughter says, look, Daddy's a penguin. That's right. He can't be, for, he can't be K5TUX because we already know where he's at. Yeah, well, we were going to use a four call since I'm in four land, so. And I think, K, I think K4TUX was open. I think W4TUX is taken. 
Well, there you go. <laughs> well, see, that brings us to emergency communications. Uh, you know, um, that's one of the things that interests me. That's one of the reasons I'm really in the hobby still to this point. Uh, you know, putting there all the side stuff to the side, the podcast, which is kind of a, an Elmering thing for me and everything else. Um, you are in a position to use Linux in emergency communications, so has that benefited you in any way? I hate to say we're, we're still. We are um, trying to get our hands around just basic phone communications. One of the issues that we wrestle with um, here in Prince William especially is that um, there are a number of agencies to which we have to answer both as amateurs and as emergency responders. And we've gotten a great deal of support from our emergency operations uh, group in Prince William and, and Pat Collins and his team have been, you know, they understand the value. Um, and the next thing we've done is we're working um, to get packet reestablished in this area. It kind of fell off after 2000 as, as people sort of went away from packet. And there is a resurgence of packet, but we are also fighting the Winlink issue. And I won't go into my personal feelings of Winlink uh, reinventing the wheel. But um, I, I think that there are advantages to Linux that we haven't explored yet. And one of my goals for this year, as I uh, talked about also in my blog, is to get more in tune with software um, and how it can make my job easier. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a Luddite when it comes to um, doing things, and other than um, running my database on MySQL, most of my EC duties have been on, with pen and ink. I don't use software, although I've got a number of folks that are running Echolink nodes and are doing packet stuff, and uh, we've got some DRAT stuff kicking around. Um, it's been very disconnected, and one of my goals for this year is to to tighten up those connections and and normalize things. That being said, uh, the Marine Corps Marathon, which runs here every uh, October, um, a gentleman by the name of Brian Gelb, and I forget his call sign off the top of my head, um, managed to build a medical tracking system so that the various aid stations can input data into a packet system and then it goes via DSTAR into the database so that TopDoc has basically real-time access to all of the medical issues on the course during the event and that's all Linux-based. He wrote the interfaces for that um, using, as I say, a combination of DSTAR and MySQL and some other stuff um, about, oh, I want to say five years ago, and they've been using that repeatedly ever since. So they've got, you know, IM running over DSTAR in the background, or uh, originally it was IM over packet, now it's IM over, over, um, over DD on 1.2. Uh, but that's all Linux-based uh, with whatever client happens to be front-ending it, whether it's a, a straight terminal session or uh, even a Windows IM client. But the whole back end is, uh, is a Jabber and MySQL-based uh, enterprise. Well, there you go. And uh, I've been looking at it. As Russ said, I've been a digital guy for a long, long time. My father and I used to run uh, uh, pa packet uh, hubs here in DFW for uh, the Worldwide Packet Network. Our backbone fell apart about the time y'all's fell apart. Uh, uh, they finally cut the link down there at Baylor University, which pretty much had the whole thing collapse. And when I got back on there a few years back after a, a few years off, uh, there was no packet anywhere. Uh, 
Uh, Winlink, yeah. Unfortunately, Winlink's going to be a deterrent to a lot of people because of that $1,000 modem involved. And uh, there was a mention in the chat room that the fellow that writes FLDG has a uh, a uh, suite called NBEMS, which is uh, uh, PSK-based. Uh, there's PSK Mail. There's uh, DRAS Digital. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff out there that we can take advantage of, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I kind of figured y'all been uh, uh, messing with it a little bit there, so <laughs> please don't think I'm being mean. <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely not. And you bring up, you know, you bring up a variety of of things that, as amateurs, we're, we're all wrestling with. You know, the collapse of the packet network really did bring down one of the more reliable emergency digital systems. And as we saw with Katrina and a little bit with Gaston, um, certainly with Ivan, um, the Internet is a pretty frail thing and is easily overloaded. I mean, even during September 11th here in Prince William County, it was a beautiful sunny Tuesday, and our phones were out. And the reason they were out was the whole phone network in the, in the mid-Atlantic area was just overloaded, and yet, you know, there really was no reason for it to be overloaded. Um, and and we found that that even with the packet the packet network was was basically missing and that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out how we can restore a functioning digital backup system to do things that we can't do over phone like uh, and and this is this is something that that I wrestle with both um, in my profession as well as uh, my hobby um, I'm very well versed in HIPAA regulations and having to manage uh, personal personal identity information PII and one of the issues that the the medical examiner is going to constantly wrestle with is how do they get the information about the deceased to the people they need to get it to without putting it over a system that isn't working like the internet or over fax lines and they look to the amateur network to pass it and we can't pass it encrypted because of regulations so how do we you know move that data around so there's a variety of ways to fix it well yeah there there definitely is and it took a lot of work to get things back up here and uh, the fact of the matter is we don't have the advantage of the HF pack, packet networks or the AppLink networks like we used to. Put a message on, uh, two to three hours later, it's across the country. A little bit longer than that, there's a response back or even something as close as 30 miles away. So, uh, yes, the, these are issues we struggle with. But here's what we need to do at this point. We've gone kind of radio geeky on on these guys, and I think we should probably take a short break so Russ can play some music so everybody's eyes can unglaze. We'll be right back, y'all. Soon the other, 
Okay, and we're back for part three. Part three of this extravaganza. And I know we went radio geeky on y'all a while ago, and it's probably time to go Lennox geeky the other direction so everybody gets even time. And since uh, Russ is like the huge Lennox guy, and I'm just the peon, uh, take it away, Russ. Well, I'm not sure where I'm taking it, but hopefully it'll go somewhere. Uh, I do want to engage... Uh, Sean a little bit since uh, he's not quite as in tune with the amateur radio side of this whole thing since um, he hasn't yet got his ticket but hopefully by the end of this he'll want to if he doesn't already uh, I do, I'm a little curious about um, uh, the packet radio idea is, is intriguing to me and you know I learned actually I learned a lot in the, the January issue of Linux Journal about um, you can't encrypt stuff which David just mentioned but I, I'm curious um, what what's involved with passing packets like that, you know, long distances and, and turnaround time and all that kind of stuff intrigues me. So I'm, I'm curious about how that, that portion of ham radio, the digital side, if you will, how that works. The packet, the idea of the packet is exactly the same as the idea of a packet in the TCP IP network. It's basically uh, sending, sending short bursts of packets but using, um, you know, radio waves instead of Cat5 for passing the sure. information. Sure, and th- but I'm curious. Are the you know I assume there's repeaters that keep sending them on and that sort of thing. Um, what type of turnaround time? I, David briefly mentioned, or somebody briefly mentioned, uh, the amount of time it would take to you know pass track it or pass packets. I'm getting tongue twisted. Um, for example, across the country, say you wanted to you know send. I, I realize the bandwidth is extremely low, um, but you know that kind of traffic. What I mean, how how robust or, or how how powerful or, or lacking or, or is that kind of a system? Well, in in the case of packet exactly uh, or packet itself, packet radio, uh, the bandwidth tends to be um, very narrow. Therefore, the throughput tends to be very low. I think twelve or twenty four hundred baud, maybe as high as packet goes, 
you can um, there there is some basic checksumming in a packet, but there's nothing robust as far as error control. There is some basic header header information. Uh, things usually pass pretty well, though. Uh, packet radio tends to exist in the VHF and UHF bands, um, which are short distance bands over FM, which uh, provides some pretty reliable radio communication. If you need to extend the range of a packet, they have what are called digipeters, which work um, the same way as uh, you know a layer three uh, router would work, uh, just passing packets uh, on to uh, forwarding nodes to get where they ultimately need to be. If it's not uh, simplex communica- uh, communication, if it's not a one-to-one uh, interaction, I may not be explaining that as well as I could, and I'm sure David could. Um, fill in or embellish at this point yeah pretty much uh, you've hit the high points Um, the key is being able to digipeat or repeat the packets from node to node so when you start talking about going cross country you start talking about um, making sure that you've got uh, uh, repeaters in key locations to continue forwarding the traffic so that if the packet is going from east coast to west coast, for example, um, that the repeaters are in line so that you can make those connections. And the other the other way to do it, is, of course, is over HF, which gets you long haul but also reduces your bandwidth considerably down to the 300 baud range. Most packet, when you think about packet, you, you should really think about uh, Telnet and store and forward old-style mail. Um, rather than uh, web pages. We're not talking web page traffic here. We're talking small messages um, of, a, of a telnet or, or email variety rather than, than you know, large, large flash pictures and maps flying around. Right, and, and I, you know, I get that. I, you know, I remember 2,400-watt dial-up, so <laughs> it's not something you'd <laughs> want to surf the web over. But, I mean, how I'm envisioning it is this, very widespread geographically, uh, like a mesh network. You know, we talk about, um, again, my, my, my expertise is in um, networking and, and Linux networking, not, not packet stuff, but, you know, the idea of a large mesh network that communicates and keeps communicating and keeps communicating. And that's actually what, I, you know, I envision this as a, a low um, throughput type network that has the ability to, you know, travel great distances and that is that's is ex- correct that's exactly what it is yep it's it's a large mesh network um and with 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 backbone sites that act as as uh, aggregators and and disaggregators depending on on um, on access but yep that's exactly in its heyday what it was the problem we've had is that sites have been decimated either because equipment failure or because of uh, loss of access to the sites um, or because people have just gotten tired of it. You know, they, what do we need packet for? We have the Internet. So uh, that's that's exactly uh, what it is, Sean. Okay. So does it take um, a person with a, you know, a ham operator's license to put up this digital repeater um, on their house, I mean, or wherever they're broadcasting, transmitting from, and to become part of this network? Or, or is there a set, you know, like you register with a centralized on the mesh coordinator type thing? Uh, sometimes, sometimes both, but, uh, as far as being licensed by the FCC, that's a definite. And then as far as being part of the digital, you know, the network that you're involved in, you may or may not have to, uh, enlist in that. Um, I know that if you're using Echolink or D-Star, um, some of those things are, uh, I don't know if, uh, regulated is exactly the right word, but you, 
you have to sort of identify yourself to the system um, Man- if, before you... Sort of management, I would assume, so that they <laughs> know where to route stuff. Right. Uh, some of that stuff is usually handled by the protocols themselves. In the case of Echolink and D-Star, you basically just kind of uh, I, you put yourself out on the network and, and sort of identify yourself as being in a certain place um, and identify yourself as being a, a place where traffic can pass. Uh, and then the rest sort of, uh, you know, handles itself. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a matter of, uh, two people discussing it and getting it set up in that way. It's just sort of a, kind of an IPv6, uh, view of the network, maybe, where, uh, there's a lot of auto configuration going on. Okay. Um, but as far as, uh, licensing, yes, if, uh, if you have, uh, something that's operating on the ham radio bands anywhere and it's going to transmit, then yes, you have to be FCC licensed to to get at least that far. Okay, but it's not an either or. It's not like you can only be this digital repeater and not do anything else. Correct. That is correct. If you have an FCC, you know, if you have a ham radio license, you can do anything with it that is within your class. And when it comes to you, when it comes to operating digital modes, uh, it's usually it's frequency based. Basically, it's like what what your class says is. You know what? What your license class says is you can operate on these frequencies using these particular modes with this particular power level or less. Within your license class, you can do any of those things, and it's it's usually not a singular thing. There are some bands that only allow, you know, uh, a single type of communication, like like Morse code or something like that. I mean, there are, there are some restrictive bands. Um, but for some of the more heavily used bands, basically just different parts of them are allocated to things like packet, things like uh, digital communications, things like CW, and then things like voice. Okay. I have a, I have another the, question. The other, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna, I was just gonna add one more piece to it, Sean. When you talk about management, the like most things in amateur radio, there's a lot of gentlemen's agreements, and so you know it's been agreed that this frequency allocation space will be used for packet radio communications across the 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 the, the region for emergencies for example um, in northern virginia and most of maryland it's uh, i want to say it's 14473 um, and we've all agreed that that's where we'll listen for packet communications on so there's there's a little bit of, of of coordination there, but it's it's more by gentleman's agreement than by uh, fiat rule or uh, something like that. I, I forgot my question, so <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll come back to you. Well, you know, Russ was talking a minute ago on the uh, subject of uh, repeaters and stuff. You know, uh, you just have to have that ID available. Uh, we're required as amateur radio operators to ID every ten minutes during a uh, communications and. Uh, at the end of that communications and the same holds true for uh, the digital networks on the air there has to be some type of station identification going on similar to what you see on uh, tv or commercial radio except ours is a little more so so and in the case of uh, packet which i believe is the direction y'all were going there uh, a lot of times that stuff's configured up in the hardware you're using and nowadays a lot of times you really don't have to have the hardware because most of a big chunk of it is software driven nowadays uh packet's still kind of iffy because there's people like myself that uh i know you have to go in the kernel and turn some stuff on and recompile but uh never have been able to get the hang of it 
gotcha. I, I remember my question. I should ask it quick before it slips away again. Um, I know go. that I actually, like I said, learned in the January issue of Linux Journal that um, broadcasting encrypted stuff is, is against the law. I'm curious, is, is there a definition of exactly what they consider encrypted? I mean, could it be something as simple as, like, ROT13 encoding that's not encryption, but just makes the, you know, the, the text that's flying by a little bit more difficult to intercept? My understanding, and I'll jump in before anybody else answers this question, but my understanding from when I very first got licensed was that if you, you cannot obfuscate a transmission in any way, um, you know, if it's essentially not plain text or... Plain English, plain text, and I, I use English in the term of, you know, language of your choice, but if it's not plain English, plain text, then it, it is not legal to transmit using uh, amateur radio license. I actually went one step further after we had this discussion, um, both on the Linux Journal site and uh, listening to Sean and Kyle's uh, original podcast. I actually sent an email to John Johnson, who used to be uh, one of the enforcement guys. And if anybody knows the answer to the question, he does. And that's exactly right. No, obfus uh, no obfuscation is permitted. And I'll, I'll forward you the email, Sean, because it really does spell out exactly where in the code... Uh, uh, the federal code of regulations this is this is listed but one of the things that we were talking about uh, a while ago was um, a seven bit transmission versus a full eight bit transmission and apparently the FCC doesn't have a problem with seven bit transmission so while it's slightly obfuscated it's uh, still within the regulations because it's not an intentional obfuscation yeah well also the uh, the rules pretty much say and I can't cite it word for word, uh, no codes or ciphers intended to obscure the, uh, the, uh, message being transmitted. Now, what that boils down to in real life is that if a way to decode that transmission is freely available, which it is in the case of all protocols used on amateur radio, uh, including D-Star, if there's a off the shelf, easy to get your hands on way to decode that particular transmission, then that doesn't fall within that criteria. It's like pa packet radio is AX25, which has been a common protocol for years. And you can go buy a TNC off the shelf or get a piece of software that can decode uh, the transmissions on packet radio. Well, it's pretty clear that um, I, I think uh, in terms of computers, we all understand that encapsulation is not encryption you can encapsulate your message in any way that's that is uh freely and easily decodable you just can't encrypt something within the encapsulation so yeah so rot 13 simple though it may be would be considered obfuscation however i could probably right. communicate in klingon with all my my star trek buddies and that would be fine as long as the control operator of the repeater that you're using speaks klingon <laughs> And there are special rules that deal with things like repeaters because they're owned by, because they, um, they operate in what's called unattended mode. They're licensed to a particular individual who's not, you know, obviously sitting there every minute of every day to identify every 10 minutes. So there are special rules that will allow to, um, unattended communications where you can, um, have an ID automatically generated. And as long as, Interestingly, as long as the ID is legal for the frequency that you're on, it doesn't have to be in the same mode. 
you could have a repeater that, and this happens a lot, where it's a FM voice communication, but the identification is done with Morse code because they're both legal on that particular frequency. And it could be any kind of communication that's legal legal on that frequency. So if it was uh, PSK-31, you could identify PSK-31 if you really wanted to or some other bizarre way. Um, and that's not considered obfuscation because it's a well-known encapsulation, a well-known mode, and legal on that particular frequency. While Sean is pondering his next question, let me jump in here real quick. One of the things that we're talking about at the Virtual Ham Shack, uh, which we've stood up at the Linux Journal, is software-defined radios. And we're looking to get more information and more people interested in Linux-based software-defined radios. So I, I throw that out there as uh, an area that um, stands to have some really exciting growth here going forward um, in the Linux ba- in the Linux field um, and amateur radio and you know, folks are welcome to to drop by the ham the virtual ham shack which is at linux journal slash ham um anytime and uh, you know comment and and help us build a uh, a robust community uh dealing with linux and amateur radio well i'm pretty sure you guys have had an opportunity to get be in touch with guys over at flex radio uh, back in October, I was down at the Belt and Ham Fest and spent some time talking to, uh, let me see who I got here, uh, Dudley, WA5QPZ, and uh, Greg, WD0ACD. And in the process of standing there talking to them, you know, I, I told them what show I was from. I was representing this show while I was down there and, uh, you know, quizzed them a little bit about that. And they said they are in the process of building... Uh, the software to run their software to find radios on Linux because uh, I believe it was I believe it was Dudley no it was Greg that told me that uh, he's a Linux guy and he wants it to happen that way so uh, uh, they're definitely uh, taking notice and starting to move this direction also uh, that's good I, I honestly I haven't done a lot with uh, software to find radios um, so I'm I'm relatively a newbie in that area. But I know that several people had asked and shown interest, so I will pass that along. And if you haven't listened to episode 26 of this podcast, you might want to take a listen to it because we discuss uh, flex radio and software-defined radios as well. I'll do that. Excellent. Thank you. We we probably should you know throw out a few more ham radio topics, and maybe uh, Richard can think of a couple. But then I want to hit these guys with a couple of big things that are going on in the in the Linux and Internet world, and I want to get their take on them before we wrap up. Oh, no, not the big Linux Internet role thing. Doggone, I'm sitting over here looking at Part 97 about IDs. Had, didn't even have my mind on it. Well, you know, there's just so much software, and I did notice in uh, in the uh, particular issue of uh, Linux Journal that there was a pretty good selection of amateur radio software uh, looked at. In some of the articles there, I see that FLDG was uh, represented. Uh, one of the logging programs, I can't remember which one at this point. One of the really good satellite programs, and several other things. I mean, there's more and more of this stuff coming along. And in fact, one of our regular uh, folks in the chat room is uh, WA0EIR Ted, who uh, has several things that are in a bunch of repositories concerning PSK31 and some other things. What do you, uh, what do you see as far as, do you, do you feel as I do that, 
Uh, even the guys that are out there programming are starting to take more of a notice of the Linux operating system are starting to uh, come over this direction to uh, help the amateur radio operators get away from uh, other operating systems they may not want to deal with anymore? I I think we're going to see it more and more. Um, I know that there is a certain degree of frustration dealing with with some of the um, the existing programs on the Windows platform, and there is certainly a lot of frustration in the lack of ability to do things. Uh, for you mentioned FL Digi, one of the um, interesting conversations I had. Um, with the author uh, of the FL Digi program, and if you, you read through the article, you'll notice that he, he went out and rolled his own version of it. He saw, he took FL Digi and he thought it was great, but there was just a few things missing, and he sat down and, and coded and fixed it, if you will, to work the way he wanted it to. And I think a number of us, um, particularly a lot of the homebrew crowd, you know, we're constantly tinkering with our radios. Why shouldn't we be tinkering with our software as well? And when we get the software presented to us in a, a black box um, and just told to, here, run it, and if you got any problems, I might get around to fixing it later, uh, that, that really sort of takes the wind out of your sails. And um, the other side of the coin, of course, is when, when the software falls out of maintenance, you know, people stop maintaining it either because they lose interest or um, in the case of, of some good programs like UIView, for example, the, the developer is, is deceased and decided that uh, on his death the code should be burned uh, in effigy and so it's, it's literally a locked box now. Um, you have an, a, an excellent piece of software that, that has basically gone end of life and, and can't be maintained. Whereas when you're looking at the Linux platform or, or open source software in general, it doesn't have to be necessarily Linux-based open source software. You can have Windows-based open source software. Um, but if the software is open sourced, if you see something wrong with it and you want to fix it and, can, and then turn around and contribute it back, which is what the community is all about and open source is all about, this only is going to benefit other people. And I think that as the, the technology gets more and more complicated, we can't all be masters of, of the domain and, and we have to sort of rely on somebody else's knowledge base to provide us with the ability to tweak this little part of it over here and while we may understand how to make this little part of it over here work. And I think we're going to see more and more of that as we go forward. We can all play play well together, and that's something that's not been happening so much in the past. And that's one of the things I always think about. You know, we, we build and tinker on our machines. We might as well build and tinker on our software also. Uh, I met a gentleman at Field Day this past year out at one of the Field Day sites who was running FL Digi. He was running a Windows version of FL Digi. However, he was a programmer and had the code and uh, was modifying it to work the way he wanted it to. Uh, that's another reason that as far as the uh, the D-Star uh, digital platform is concerned, I'm a big fan of, uh, of uh, D-Rats simply because it is written in Python. And even though I haven't had the time to sit down and study on Python enough to be able to fix the problems and, and change the things I need to change in it, at some point I will be able to because that source code is available. And this is something that even with those two particular programs would still be, I would still be able to do with window in the Windows version. There's so many other things out there that you can't. Uh, one of the things I gripe about most is, uh, 
old Simon over there at HRD. You know, uh, three quarters of that uh, Ham Radio Deluxe is uh, uh, open source software that he, for one reason or another, has taken and rolled up in there and not letting anybody know <laughs> what he's done with it. But even he's starting to come around. So I'm hoping these programmers are going to start to... Uh, start working our direction more and more we're getting better and better apps all the time and i hope it keeps going that way i've done pretty much run out of subjects and i know i know russ wants to get uber geeky so i need to go get my my rope tied around his ankle so i can pull him down out of the rafters in a little bit but uh if y'all got anything else on amateur radio before i before i take the leash off of him now let him go <laughs> Go get him, Russ. Well, like I said, I'm trying to get Sean involved in this because I haven't seen his little his little lights for his voice move in quite a while. So I know he's feeling left out right now. I could I could sing if you like. <laughs> well, you might start singing when I bring up these two topics that I'm interested in getting your guys' take on. There's a rule that if Sean breaks into song, that we have to give it up. We've gotten too dull. Uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen. But uh, there, there are two things that have happened in the world lately that I've been interested in and kind of following, have addressed in uh, previous episodes of the podcast. But now that we have a couple of, of these great guys from Linux Journal Magazine who are, who are like all-knowing in the Linux world um, and about computers and things like that, um, I definitely have to ask you guys about them. And the first one I'm going to bring up, I, I was trying to figure out which way I should address it, um, but I'm going to bring up the evil, the, the new evil empire first. Basically, I've had my own say on some of these things, but I'm curious about your guys' take, and I want Sean to be the one who sort of takes the lead on these. But first of all, Google these days is doing a lot of things, and it seems like not a lot of them are worth doing, to wit, Google Voice and Google Wave. Google Wave, honestly, I mean, actually, since Gmail, I found very little to use about Google at all. But I honestly think that Google Wave is the first application that Google has put out that has been truly worthless. And I would like to uh, find out from you guys what you where where you think Google is trending to. I mean, has has the thing just gotten so big that they don't know what they're doing anymore, or are, are there just no more wheels to reinvent? Or well, you know, what's, go here's, ahead. Here's my take, and I, I think it was the January issue. I actually wrote about Google Wave. Um, I I agree. I don't get it i you know I, I just don't understand google wave where they're going now in google's defense it is like pre-alpha invite only but for a collaboration tool it, it it seems a bit silly to me to have such a closed um system if you want people to try collaborating it's generally good if they can collaborate with people so maybe google wave is going to be awesome i certainly don't see how that's possible or you know I, I, it just doesn't make sense to me no, a lot of their other things, Gmail, um, again, I use it constantly. I have my personal domains forwarded to, to um, Google for Gmail. But um, Google Voice, you mentioned, I love Google Voice. I mean, I can give out my phone number and not be concerned that I'm giving out personal information. If uh, my phone number changes, I can keep my, my number up there. Um, I, I don't hesitate giving people my Google Voice number, and my phones ring just like normal. So um, I, I think there's advantages. Now, as far as them being an evil empire, I don't know. I try to look at the positive side of it, that their tools are almost all web-based. And for a Linux user, a web-based tool is awesome. 
from my perspective, as I don't have an invite to uh, to Google Wave, so I, I can't really comment on it directly. Although some of the comments I've seen have been um, um, a solution in search of a problem, and um, uh, what is Google planning to do next? I will admit that uh, certainly Gmail is one of my favorite tools as well, and in fact, my uh, Aries Reflector is run through uh, the Google Groups tool, as is our uh, Club uh, Reflector. In fact, both our Club Reflectors here in Prince William run through uh, through um, through Google. I've used the uh, Google Pages uh, feature to put up quick and dirty websites or to host large downloads, um, particularly before I got my uh, my domain set up and running. Um, I have a Google Voice number. I've never actually used it. I'm not even sure that I remember how to access it. Um, but again, as I've said before, I tend to be less uh, positive about the cloud atmosphere um, simply because I work in an environment where my access to the cloud is restricted or restrained um, or cut off entirely. Uh, working for the federal government, uh, we find a lot of the useful tools that, that we can use outside the building um, are disconnected from us when we're inside the building for security reasons. So as a result, a lot of these things for me are uh, of less value because they are on the Internet. Uh, Google Docs, etc. I've used, I think, Google Word once, and that's I wasn't really overly impressed with it. Uh, so that's that's my take on, on Google as far as their tool sets. Uh, where they're going... I think they're still really trying to figure out what what the next generation of the company is going to look like, and I think we've got a way to go to see what it's it's going to be. Uh, Chrome is their operating system, and uh, Glenn Moody's talked a little bit about uh, that on uh, on the Linux Journal site. And uh, the Chrome browser certainly has had uh, its fair share of knocks. So I, I think the company itself is is sort of trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. Now that it's mastered. Uh, the search engine uh, market, if you will. Well, if you, depending on who you talk to, they've they're falling down in the in the search engine re, uh, regime as well these days. Uh, things are coming along where some people think that um, a, a traditional search is no longer where it's where it's at. And I don't want to reference the Redmond company and their new thing, um, but that along with other things has been mentioned as well. And interestingly, I just I just thought. Um, with Google Wave um, and some of the new stuff that's come out, they're, they're just kind of backtracking. And I, I heard on another podcast recently that they've actually destroyed or they've actually um, removed all meaning from the word beta because all Google software is beta and um, except, for, except for the one-page search engine thing that they've got going. Um, actually, they actually. If you look this morning, um, it was pointed out to me that the beta is now gone from the Gmail site. It is now Although, production if code. You want, if you want, you can go into Google Labs and re-enable the sticker on the corner that says beta if you miss beta. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just just to give you an idea about that Redmond tool, because it's not Google, um, we were, uh, again, at this Windows conference, and all of the representatives said, uh, if you... Um, if you take the search term you're looking for and put it into Bing, and when nothing returns, put it into Google, and that was sort of the running joke the whole time we were there. So, 
<laughs> well, I didn't want to speculate one way or the other because I don't use Bing and I don't plan to use Bing. I still like Google for what, or Google the original, the search engine for what it is. But I was thinking back to um, another tool, and I honestly wonder if, uh, and, and you know, obviously Google's not going anywhere. But the sort of downhill trend of Google towards things like Google Wave and stuff like that didn't start a while ago with something called Orkut. I mean, does everyone even remember Orkut? Yes, vaguely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I, you know, they bought up a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and I think that was another one of the smaller things that they bought and then tried to rebrand. I, I mean, even Google Voices. I mean, that's just Grand Central. So, you know, when you have all that much money, buy something and brand it and perfect it. And, you know, all right. Whatever. And that's actually an interesting segue because that's, a, that's going to lead into the other topic that I was uh, going to bring up Um uh, basically the idea of buying stuff and what's going to become of it once you do that. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, I want to hear your guys' take on Google DNS. Eh. <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't assigned anything to it. Apart from it being extremely easy to remember, I say that and I, I think at what, 8.8.8.8? I mean, you can't go wrong there if you can't think of a DNS server, but, you know, eh, I don't know. Not, not seeing anything particularly uh, detrimental or anything like that. It's just a, a non-issue, essentially. Well, for me, I, you know, I, I don't have really a big DNS problem that Google needs to fix. You know, so you mentioned earlier that maybe Google Wave was, um, you know, fixing a problem that wasn't there. Maybe the same thing with Google DNS. I mean, you know, great. If you need a uh, DNS server um, that they say responds fast, if you have a slow one, hey, great, use it, but, you know. Yeah, I, quite honestly, if you haven't read Cricket's book, um, you have no business running DNS, and so maybe that's why you'd use it, but uh, real sysadmins have read Cricket's book and um, managed DNS properly, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll go with that's a non-issue. So, Richard, do you have anything to contribute to this before I move into the second of the two topics I want to bring up? Oh, no, y'all keep going. You, everybody knows my opinions on some of this stuff. I went over and checked out. Um, in fact, I scrounged an invite from another podcaster for Google Wave. And unfortunately, if I want to talk to myself, I'll get on packet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good ham radio-related joke. So Sean's sitting there going, hmm, that must have been funny, but... <laughs> I, can, I can laugh if you want. Uh, no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> Well, no, I always start on these things before everybody else does, so I end up being the only person on frequency. So I end up having to set up two computers, two radios, and whatever, two, a pair of whatever other hardware happens to be going on, and then talk to myself until I know everything's working right. That's what that's, that's all about. Right, TNC. There you go. So you like to actually take uh, two auto MDXing switch ports and plug them into each other and watch them go. I don't know what I, what what would that you said. <laughs> we just lost him. Uh, all right, never mind. I guess no, I was I was lost before we got started, y'all. Y'all y'all need to listen to the show more. Now you're just picking on me because that's one of the issues I have at the school all the time. But anyway, <laughs> oh, I'd like to hear about that. Uh, no, no, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> no. All right. Well, here's the other thing. Okay, I'll give you the the two second version here. Our school has a great backbone as far as the network goes. However, in the classrooms, they don't have enough drops. So we have cheap desktop switches in the classroom. 
while students find it amazing that if they plug a switch into itself, it takes down the entire network. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, that is funny. But anyway, here's the other topic I want to get some input on, and it relates directly to companies buying companies and what becomes of uh, those that have been usurped. And the and I've been hearing a lot about this lately, and I don't know if Linux, like I said, my first issue of Linux Journal is right here in my hand, and I don't remember seeing anything about this. Oracle buying MySQL. I've heard all kinds of talk about what's going to happen to MySQL at this point and what everybody thinks, you know, everybody, of course, except for Oracle's pretty lame statement about what they plan to do with it. And I And I have my thoughts about what they're going to do with it, so in a nutshell, what, what is to become of MySQL? Well, here's the thing. MySQL is open source, right? So no matter what Oracle wants to do with it, it could always fork and just become MySQL open source, and you know, they, can, they only have so much control. Um, you know, that, that's the beauty of open source. As far as what they're going to do, I, I have no idea. I mean, that's just... It, it, I, no clue. <laughs> that was the no clue noise. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> well, us, having having been in a having worked for several companies that have been bought, the the old joke is uh, I've uh, I've worked for four companies and never changed my desk. Um, Oracle didn't buy MySQL. Oracle bought Sun, who bought MySQL. So you know you, you mix in apples and oranges here. But if you look at Oracle's track record over the past. Oh, ten years of buying up companies. Um, you look at the companies they've bought. They've bought Sleepy Cat, and it's still available, and it's still a very usable database system. They've bought PeopleSoft. It's still available, and it's still as bad as it ever was. Um, it's still a, a usable system. Um, they bought a company called Portal, which is a telecommunications um, billing company, and believe me, that is a niche market into itself. Um, and it's still available, and it's still running as still running and i suspect that once they once larry figures out just exactly what he wants out of my sequel he'll take the good parts and stick them in oracle and he'll leave the le- the rest alone um when he when he jumped into the linux world um he did it with both feet and Oracle still to this day generates a large amount of code to the Linux code base. They also generate a large amount of code to the to the um, to the Java code base. So in some ways, it probably gives him a, a cadre of developers that understand what they're doing. And I suspect that we will see some of the good parts of bridged versions of Oracle sort of find their way into MySQL. Um, one of the long-running religious battles, if you will, in the open-source database world is between MySQL and uh, Postgres. There are things that each database does well and each database does poorly, and they do them for the reasons they do them because those were the design decisions they made. But I think we'll see sh- shake out here that, that some of the things that MySQL decided not to do for design reasons or for... Uh, resource reasons that suddenly they'll be able to do them because they have the design and resource capabilities with Oracle behind them. 
that's that's my prediction. I don't think this is a bad thing for my sequel. I think the commercial version will continue to be supported as a commercial version if it doesn't get rolled up entirely into Oracle Lite or Oracle The Next Generation or uh, uh, Oracle Short or whatever uh, the marketing group calls it this week. Um, there's been several of those sort of, of light and fluffy desktop versions that Oracle's churned out over the years. Um, but I think the MySQL open source product will continue to exist, and, and it may go the route of Fedora, um, where Red Hat uses Fedora as its testing ground, um, just like ICOM uses its amateur radio market as its testing ground. The stuff that, that passes muster in the amateur radio market finds its way into the land mobile market. Similarly, the stuff that passes muster in the Fedora code base winds up in the Red Hat code base. Uh, quite honestly, I think Larry would be smart to use MySQL in a similar in a similar vein, and I suspect he probably will. Okay, I guess I it may have sounded like I was kind of leading that uh, in a negative direction, following it up with a discussion of Google, and I really wasn't because I actually think it will be a, it will turn out to be a good thing both for Oracle and for MySQL. I just probably probably made that sound like I was down on it, but I wasn't. Rich. Well, I, I I actually got an email from Monty yesterday saying sign the petition. So <laughs> there are there are some that think it is a bad thing, but. Uh, as the pessimist in the group, I actually don't see it as a bad thing. I think it's going to be a good thing both for MySQL, MySQL users, and for Oracle. Right, and I think Sean's point is well taken that basically since it's GPL software that, that if things go awry, the inevitable code fork will be the way things go. And it's actually, uh, as I understand it, already forked uh, into MariaDB. Here's the, here's the thing, too. I mean, there... You know, we can we can talk all day about corporate this and this company doing this and this adding, but sadly, in the end, when it comes down to it, we're probably going to see very little. As, you know, for those of us who are just end users that enjoy using Linux and, and take advantage of free software, we're probably going to see very little um, difference. It's just going to be there. It's going to work. It's going to do what our programs want it to do. Do you think it shakes down that way with all software, basically all open source software? That uh, no, no. no. No, absolutely not. Uh, there are a number of companies, and I won't bother naming them, that have really mucked up their open source implementations uh, badly. And there are a number of companies that have badly leveraged the open source community. Um, they aren't the big boys, and they're people you wouldn't want to do business with anyway. They're, they, they make used car salesmen look good. Um, and I apologize to the used car salesmen I just defamed. But... Um, I think, by and large, the, the, the pieces of the puzzle that we rely on day in and day, day out, the database engines, whether they're Postgres or MySQL, the underlying kernel, which Linus has his thumb on quite tightly, um, as we heard, in Portland, and and some of the other you know things that we depend on, yeah, they'll continue to work just the way they did. And the companies that muck up the open source code the code will go away and and we'll never see it again or we'll we'll look back and go yeah i remember that what happened to that and then we'll be able to wind it back through the corporate trail all right well that was it that was uh, my going into the uh the lofty universe of linux open source and corporate greed um or whatever you want to call it we're under attack by a sub here richard is supposed to be uh throwing a lasso over to bring me back to earth I was busy playing in the chat room and getting attacked by a submarine. You know, it's a good thing I don't pay attention to half of the stuff that goes on around here because we never get anything done. <laughs> I know. The last time he paid attention to the chat room, he got the giggling so bad that we had to postpone the rest of the show for half an hour. 
<laughs> but Russ is allergic to bacon. Oh, I'm not. I anyway. love bacon. So, Russ, have you pretty much played it out? I just let you run, man. You know, occasionally you just have to have to. No, I've I've definitely played it out because at some point I have to edit all this down into something listenable, and uh, I'm not going to make that job harder for myself. So I'm going to send it over to you. Oh, I see. So you're going to blame it all on me now. Yeah. Well, Sean and Dave, we have reached a portion of our program where it's time to pimp the magazine. So y'all jump in there and give them all the information and tell them what a great deal it is to have it have it laying around on your desktop because all the women will think that you're just the absolute hottest thing happening because you have Linux Journal laying on your coffee table. All right, well, I'll tell you, the February issue, which you now have in front of you, um, I think, Russ, is the one that there's there's a child on the front, and nothing attracts the women like children, right? Oh, right. it's so cute. It's for kids. No, but Linux Journal is um, it's a magazine for people at all stages of their Linux development. Um, I like to think that it's approachable if you don't know much about Linux, and it's useful if you're if you're a seasoned Linux veteran. Um, I'm not good at the commercials thing, so LinuxJournal.com is our website. You can subscribe there. You can get um, a digital subscription, or you can get a, a print subscription. It's it's a great magazine. We're a pretty interesting community of people too. So if you're on Twitter, we're there. There's a bunch of us, and um, that's all I got. Well, I'll throw out as well the uh, virtual ham shack that we've stood up for uh, folks interested in open source software and amateur radio. It's also at the LinuxJournal.com/ham, and I am the control op there for the moment anyway. Till somebody comes along and decides they want to do it more than I do, uh, we're going to put up some resources as we get them. So uh, we'll uh, add those there. We've got a couple of forums running right now. And you can usually find me in the Linux Journal chat room, which is on Freenode. It's a uh, pound Linux Journal. Come on over and uh, drop us a note. If you want to prove just how cool you are, we have um, a store with some awesome apparel and such as well. i got to pimp this out. Um, we just mentioned it on our show, but um, if you're a Linux user and you want our Root Superhero T-shirt, it's our newest, coolest thing. And... Um, you just got to see it to to appreciate it. And if you don't understand it, well, if you're a new Linux journal reader, you will. Here, I'll link it in the in the chat room to check this out. <laughs> see if it makes sense and to you. Grab that link, Bill. And while he's while he's <laughs> pimping that out, if you run into me at a ham fest, you can get a uh, a Linux journal uh, amateur radio uh, sticker. We've got uh, the cover art on a on a sticker, so you can uh, get that. All right, sounds good. Were you guys were either of you guys at Ohio Linux Fest? Yeah, I was a keynote speaker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you did you stop by the exposition or no? Right outside, yeah, I was there for the whole time. Oh well, because I was there, but I don't I don't know if you stopped by or not. It's very possible I I did. I was I hate to say I was extremely popular, but a lot of people were talking to me. If you were the guy sitting at the table with all the radio equipment, then I walked past you a whole bunch of times. Um, well, do you, if you remember where the Linux Link Tech Show was, I was right next to them. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All we'll right. We'll do better next year. Okay, sounds good. So that was our little chat session roundtable, whatever you want to call it, with the guys from Linux Journal, and we want to thank both of them. First of all, Sean Powers, the associate editor. Thank you very much for showing up, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. Also, David Lane, who is uh, KG4GIY, the guy behind the ham shop over there at Linux Journal. LinuxJournal.com slash ham or stroke ham if you happen to be a, a hammer. 
And thank you very much, David, for spending some time with us tonight. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you both for being here. Thank you very much. It was an honor to have you on the show, and uh, hopefully we will uh, have more interaction with Linux Journal folks in the future. I managed to talk Carly into giving us a listing over there at the uh, Stroke Ham website. So uh, hopefully that'll uh, get us a listener or two. You never know. Anyway, thanks a lot, guys, and we're going to move on to our final wrap-up here. Unless Richard has anything he wants to say. I was just going to make mention that stroking your ham will not matter what not endear you to the Jewish community because no matter how much you stroke it, it ain't going to be kosher. Oh, boy. <laughs> On that lovely note, I will talk to you gentlemen later. I didn't make you mad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Bye. You're welcome. Bye. Take care. <laughs> So this ends another episode of Linux in the Ham Shack. Uh, y'all tune in, in again next time. If you want to get a hold of me, you contact me at kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com. kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com. Or follow me on Twitter, Facebook, one of the 5,415 social networks I'm on. I'm also kb5jbv there. As far as the forums over at Black Sparrow Media, you'd be better off going over to Linux Journal. So with that, I'm going to throw it over to Russ. Russ, tell them all about it. All right. You can contact me at K5TUX at BlackSparrowMedia.com. Follow me on Twitter using J.R. Woodman. Uh, you can use that at Identica and Facebook, MySpace, and the other 5,413 social networks that I'm on. Also, feel free to follow the program at HamShackLinux over at Twitter.com. That's HamShackLinux. If you want to follow that, you will get show updates and information specific to the podcast. I still post some of that stuff under J.R. Woodman, but I'm going to try and get more people over to HamShackLinux so I can separate my two personalities. You can follow us and become a fan over at Facebook. Just do a search for Linux in the HamShack podcast. You'll find it. Uh, we have a new channel over at Freenode on IRC for those of you who use IRC. We are Pound LHS Podcast. That's the channel to look for over there on Freenode. Come on by, say hi. We're there most of the time. We will talk with you when the podcast is not live and in between and all that, answer your questions, take show suggestions, all that good stuff. Go to the website, lhsinfo.org. Check out all the cool things we have over there, new articles, streaming audio, uh, show notes in case you miss some stuff from each podcast as we release them and all that good thing. If you have a couple of bucks to leave us, you can leave a donation. We are putting all the money right now into the Send Linux in the Ham Shack to the Dayton Hamvention in May of 2010 out there in Dayton, Ohio. We are getting really close to be able to get our booth set up and everything. Uh, I will be making uh, my contribution here pretty quick, and I think we'll be three-quarters of the way to our goal. We need to buy our booth space by February 1st, I believe, so we've got about 25 days to go. And hopefully, if we get set up and everything, we will see everyone out there. And we want to thank everybody who's donated in the past and everybody who donates in the future. Thank you very much. Every donation is appreciated. I think that's about all I have to say on that guess we're going to wrap this thing up and i'll go try and find a warm place to hole up for the next few weeks because uh this global warming thing is just getting a little out of hand 
I don't know if I can take it. My uh, thermometer doesn't even know how to go into the negatives. That's all there is for me up here in the snowy, piney forests of north central Arkansas. I'm K5TUX, and back down there in the bunker in Balt Springs, Texas is... KB5JBV, and th- just let me remind y'all, if you if you have a tendency to shoot a penguin in Russ's underwear, don't, because it will hurt him. We will talk to you next time.